ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ticklish Business. As always, I'm Samantha Ellis, joined by Kristen Lopez. Hello. Kristen, how are you this week? I'm doing good. I mean, it's been wild weather, but I'm excited to talk about silent films. This was a thing that you and I said when we were talking about goals for the year. We wanted to do more silent stuff. So who better than to talk about Marion Davies with our special guest today? So I'm excited. This week, we are talking all about Marion Davies, one of the stars who successfully made the transition from silent film into talkies. A new biography about Marion Davies called Captain of Her Soul, The Life of Marion Davies is now available to purchase and read. And we are so excited and grateful to have the author of that book, Laura Gabrielle, with us today to chat about Marion. Before we talk to Laura about Marion Davies, we'd like to briefly remind everyone that if you haven't checked out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz, you should. We do additional bonus pods, including double features, looking at remakes, and based on a true podcast, looking at biopics and true crime. We just wrapped up our Thin Man series, but we have so many fun things planned for 2023. We also give out regular care packages of movies and gifts and let you guest on an episode. It's all at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. And don't forget to pre-order Kristen's upcoming book, But Have You Read the Book? 52 Literary Gems That Inspired Our Favorite Movies, coming out on March 7th. You can pre-order that wherever you get books. And our new Redbubble store has some fabulous art, all designed by me, including your favorite stars and our popular Makoko mugs. You can find that at redbubble slash people slash ticklishbiz. Now back to Marion Davies. I have to admit, we aren't super well-versed. Speaking for myself, I'm not. I have seen beginning to end one full movie, and I would say it's a little out of the way compared to a lot of the ones that I hear in the Marion Davies conversations. The one movie that I personally have seen is Five and Ten with Leslie Howard which I loved. I love that movie. She's great in it. I have so many of her movies on my watch list. I have Kane and Mabel. I have a lot of her silence, you name it, but I just haven't gotten to them. And I feel like a lot of the time in these greater classic film conversations, Marion is swept under the rug anyway. How are we addressing that? Why is 2023 the year that we are bringing Marion Davies into the public? Before we start in, can I just say, I really want a Makoko mug. (laughs) I'll send you one. Oh my gosh. I'll hook you up. (laughs) Thank you. I want to touch a little bit on 5 and 10. I love that 5 and 10 is the movie that you have seen because it's one of her best. She was great in pre-codes and she had a really nice chemistry with Leslie Howard. I'm really happy that 5 and 10 is the one you've seen and hopefully you can see some more because there's a lot. She has a lot of really, really fantastic movies. The question that you had was why now? Why 2023? There could be any number of answers to this, but we're at a time right now when we're really valuing women's stories as their own stories. Marion Davies has been so linked to Hearst for so long and has been a secondary almost appendage to the Hearst story for such a long time. It's time that she get her own voice back. 
that's what I set out to do when I started writing this book to tell Marion Davies story as her own story. Hearst is there. He has to be there because he was such a huge part of her life. But this is Marion's story. And women need to have their own voice and their own agency. And Marion was good about that during her life. She stood up for herself. The title of my book is Captain of Her Soul. And that's no accident. She was in charge of her own life. And people need to know that. I remember you and I talking at one of the TCM film festivals. I think it was closing night. I remember this very distinctly. You saying you were going to write this book about Marion Davies. Now it's here. It's surreal for me, knowing you, knowing you wrote this book. I'm sure it's even more surreal that you wrote it and it's out. But what's the research process like for this? Because I know as someone like me who's talked about access to people, firsthand sources is harder and harder every year because we lose people. You're talking about an actress that was in the early 1920s making movies. What was the research component like for this? Most of the people have died. Interestingly, though, I did have a few firsthand sources, some people who knew Marion, because Marion lived until the early 60s, and she had a lot of young friends. She liked the company of younger people. So a lot of her friends from the 50s are still alive. They're very old, but they're still around. So I did have a few of those. But people like Frances Marion, people like Anita Luce, people who were working with her in the 20s when she was actually working are all gone. Fortunately for me, I have a vast array of physical media. Actually, you, Samantha and Kristen, you can see the tapes in the back of me there. Those are interviews with people like William Haynes and Anita Luce and people who knew Marion well. Those tapes are from Fred Lawrence Giles, who did the other biography of Marion Davies in 1972. I got access to his tapes, his interview tapes with these people. So that was really, really helpful. That's amazing. Yeah, Marion's own autobiographical tapes. I got those. Those figure prominently into the story. Lots of archival research. So I went to the USC, UCLA, the Academy, Library of Congress, New York Public Library, Columbia, all of these places that have materials on Marion's life when she was in the theater, Marion's life when she was working at MGM and at Warner Brothers. Lots of luck with the people who were still alive. There is a man who helped Marion do her autobiographical tapes and was also the only member of the press witness to the day of Hearst's death, who was still alive at 98 years old. He was a huge help to me in this project because he remembers. He remembers what the house was like on that day. He remembers what Marion was wearing when she was recording her tapes how she had her feet. So lots of archival research and lots and lots of luck about who was still alive. It's amazing because I've been watching along with the TCM screenings that they've had every Tuesday. And to watch some of her stuff, you write in the book that Hearst didn't want her to be a comedian. He didn't like what he perceived as making fun of her. But to watch something like Little Old New York, which I saw for the first time, where she's playing a boy... But she has such great facial comedy and physical comedy that is just so modern. What stands out yeah. to you about Marion as an actress? I didn't assume that. There's this real false belief that all silent actors, maybe they could emote. But she's doing something that feels very fresh that actors are still doing now. 
Marion, in every role she played, she was always herself. She always infused her own personality into those roles to one degree or another, some more than others, especially in her early work. You see a similar thing in One Night It Was in Flower. And like you said, Little Old New York and Beverly of Groundstark. You can see Marion Davies in those roles. She's great. She plays the roles really well, but she has this signature way that she is. And it's very, very genuine. That speaks to people about her. And she is very modern. She does a lot of things in her movies that maybe we associate with later tropes, like cross-dressing, right? She does a lot of cross-dressing in her movies. In Little Old New York, she is playing her own brother. And then there's almost a gay theme that runs through that with another character. She's very accessible to modern people. I can't stress enough what you just touched on. Watching Little Old New York, which is actually a really funny movie and very sweet, to watch her sing this love song and the guy comes out and he's staring at her. I was just sitting there thinking in 1922, it's Gay, right? He it's has every reason to believe that she's a man. I feel like it would be a great double feature with Victor Victoria because it really does play with the concept of attraction and how that works out. But it's 1922. And if you are a person like me that probably has just not watched nearly enough 1920s silent film, I was just like, what? Scary. I love it. <laughs> yeah, he's questioning his sexuality outright on the screen. It's creatively done, but it's not hidden. It's clear that that's what's happening. And it's turning 100 years old this year, that movie. Pretty amazing. Worth a rewatch or a yeah. first time watch. One thing that I have to say that I'm curious about as someone who is new to Marion, something that we discuss a lot on the show, especially when it comes to women is how in control of their publicity they were at the time. In some cases, you have an entire person or entity behind you creating stories, making you out to be someone that you're not. What do you think that was like for Marion in her time, in and out of her career, when she was with someone like hers who had so much control over the media? That's a great question. Her career was controlled by Hearst to a certain degree, up to a certain point. She had a tremendous amount of publicity behind her, the power of the papers that one would think would really help her, would really get her into the minds of the public. But by about 1922, which is early, right? I mean, Marion made her first movie in 1917. The Hearst publicity really started around 1918. By 1922, the audiences were impatient with it. They knew that was what was happening, that Hearst was really pushing Mary Davies. And see it, you read these headlines that are the greatest story ever told. It got a little tiresome for the audience. So it had somewhat of an, the opposite effect. And people were noticing that Marion Davies was a comedian, that she should be a comedian. And it wasn't happening for her. Marion also really wanted to do comedy. So later on, in the mid-20s, after the move to California, she was based in New York up until 1924, Marion herself took charge of her own image. She went to Thalberg 
and said, look, we got to do something here. I want to play a modern girl. Those were her words. Let's see how we can do this. So Thalberg went to Hearst and told Hearst about their conversation. And Hearst said, okay, let's give it a try. It was Marion who was the catalyst for her own career change from drama into comedy. And then by 1929, interestingly enough, by 1929, Hearst was saying, I want Marion Davies only in comedy. It's so interesting because the title is Captain of Her Soul. We're talking about Marion Davies agency. And it's something that I've noticed just about the Hollywood machine in general. Blonde is a great example where you have outside directors telling you what they think they know about these performers. And Marion Davies is one of those that has had a few interpretations outside of her own films, whether that's the misguided belief that Citizen Kane's Susan Alexander is based on her. You talk about how that's not at all the case. And if it is the case, then he clearly didn't understand. But we also have something like Kirsten Dunst in The Cat's Meow or Amanda Seyfried and Mank, Melanie Griffith and RKO 281, where we're still seeing these interpretations of her in a way that after reading your book, you and I both know, I think The Cat's Meow is a fun work of fiction. Reading the book, I was really thinking back about how Hollywood has interpreted her since. How do you look at the filmic interpretations of her at this point, especially after writing and living with her for as long as you have? What I usually say about that is that there has never once been an accurate depiction of Marion Davies on film. And it's not the actress's fault. That's important to point out. It's the material, the way that the material is worked with by the director, by the producers, by the whoever. The actresses get a lot of the brunt of this, oh, she was terrible, oh, she didn't do it right. It's not their fault. I can tell you that Virginia Madsen in the Hearst Davies affair. Now the Hearst Davies affair, it wasn't accurate, right? There has never been an accurate portrayal, but Virginia Madsen off screen adores Marion Davies, loves, loves, loves Marion Davies. And she did all her research. She went to the right people. She studied Marion. She did what she could. I have an interview with her that she did for a documentary where she talked about Marion and how it must have felt for Marion to have some experiences that she had later in life. And she started to cry. Virginia Madsen starts to cry in this interview, talking about what it must have felt like for Marion Davies. That's genuine. I have a lot of respect for her. A lot of respect for Virginia Madsen. Something like Bogdanovich is a huge classic film fan, but something like The Cat's Meow couches it in her relationships to these other men. But you talk about in a really interesting way, her relationship with Charlie Chaplin. I had always assumed was rumor. We got to give her a love triangle. Who's the most popular dude of that era, Chaplin. You talk about as much as you can. Am I accurate in saying it might have been a relationship? Or how do you look at that? The way I look at it is that there are a lot of things that we can't know. There are a lot of things that are gone. Both of those people who were privy to whatever that relationship was have died. We can't know the exact details of what went on between them. What we do know is that they spent a lot of time together, that Hearst felt like it was dangerous to him to the point where he sent spies. He sent spies to follow Marion and Chaplin around together. 
I have the spy reports, which is interesting. We know that Chaplin was at Marion's, pulled up to Marion, spent about a bit of time there, and then left and then came back. And they were spending time together. How romantic it was is something that we can't really know. And Marion was really affectionate with everybody. It wasn't just Chaplin, to the point where her friends would say things like, you can't sit on somebody's lap and loosle their hair. They're going to get the wrong impression about what is going on. We know they're just friends, but you can't do that. I love that you have spy reports. You were probably the only person I know that has anything that could be called a spy report. <laughs> and I love it. <laughs> a lot of research will turn up things like that. On my end, I'm trying to learn about Marion. And like I said, I'm seeing everything that's put out about her, how closely it's linked to Hearst. I'm trying to do research for my actress cookbook. And she has a lot of recipes dedicated to her. And I'm like, wow, these are probably all fake. <laughs> there was one recipe that somebody posted the other day for cheese patties. I've seen that one. And most of the things that are attributed to Marion is like, no, <laughs> Marion was never in the kitchen ever. But the cheese patties kind of spoke to me because when Marion was a young actress, she and her friends, her chorus girl friends, after the show, they would go to someone's house and just hang out there until the morning chatting, playing games, having fun. Those cheese patties sound like something that would be eaten at the late night party. Is it cheese on some meat? I miss cheese patty thing. I guess it's like a fried cheese. I really don't know. It's like cheese with milk. I can actually find the recipe. Let Old Hollywood recipes can... sound horrible sometimes. Some of them I'm sure turn out delicious, but then you get something like cheese patty or Lupe Velez has something that's just cottage cheese and peaches. Why are we eating these things? Stop it. Yes. So this is... Pie crust, butter, eggs, breadcrumbs, cheese, baking powder, milk, and seasoning. And you line the small tins with crust that have been rolled thin. Beat butter until creamy. Add slightly beaten eggs, breadcrumbs, cheese, baking powder, and seasoning. Add the milk. Place a teaspoon in each tin. Bake 15 minutes. That sounds like a late night thing. I love it. I love the idea because I'm also the type of person. I have all these recipes of my favorites, right? 90% sure they're all fake, but then I do have that 10% that tries to make those connections just like that. Well, maybe she could have eaten this at this time with these people. Yeah, I a love lot that. Of them, Carrie Bible and I on Hollywood Kitchen made a peach shortcake Tampa that is a tribute. I've seen the recipe for that too. I have no idea why it's attributed to Marion. I can't think of any time when Marion would have had peach shortcake Tampa. But for some reason, I saw this cheese patty recipe and was like, the cat part, that's what they call them, call them cat party. So I bet they ate those at the cat parties. <laughs> I'm putting that one in bold. The other thing that's so interesting, and I guess this could be attributed to the larger conversation that we might have about Marion, it's hard to put her in one decade. Like what you're hearing? Then consider supporting Ticklish Business via Patreon. We host two additional bonus shows and special series like Six Weeks with the Thin Man, give out free merch, allow you to guess on an episode, and more. You can check it out at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. And if you want to take Ticklish Biz home with you, consider buying something from our Redbubble shop. 
You can find our holiday Jean and Judy Makoko mugs or get our newest design devoted to Jean Kelly's ahem, assets in an American in Paris on a variety of objects. It's at redbubble.com slash people slash ticklish biz. Now back to the show. Funny enough, before I really knew about her silent career, I attributed her more to the 30s, which is crazy looking back because really her career is probably more in silence just because she held her own and really had her name above the title in a lot of those 30s movies. That's what I associated her with. Definitely. Kristen talked a little bit about this and you too, Samantha, before I came on. She was one of the few big stars to make a very successful transition into sound. She started in sound films in 1929, and then her career went on for eight more years. She retired in 1937. She was a sound era actress for a while. She was also very much a silent era actress. Your statement that she doesn't really belong to one decade is pretty true. And then you could also talk about beyond her film work into what she did for the war effort in the 40s. What she did for the children's clinic through the 50s, donating the clinic to UCLA in 1958, and it's still there. So you're right. She doesn't belong to one decade. She belongs to the teens when she was doing her chorus girl work, 20s and 30s in film work, and then beyond that to a lot of the different historical things that happened until her death in 1961. Her last public appearance was at the JFK inauguration. That's so crazy to think about. I just have to sink that in for a second, historically. Yeah. It's one of those statistics, like hearing that Anne Frank and Martin Luther King Jr. were born in the same year. Mm -hmm. It's ironic that we had Nancy Olson Livingston, who met JFK, talking about JFK. And now we have Mara talking about Marion Davies. JFK is really haunting this podcast (laughs) over the last couple of months, is what I'm taking away from all. And that's not even going into the Gene Tierney's of the situation. (laughs) In my little mini reviews that I've been writing on Letterboxd about the Marian silence that I've watched, to watch something like Kate and Mabel, where she's opposite, what is it, Clark Gable? I've noticed that in the last few Marian movies that I've watched, my biggest complaint is that she's really great and the male actors playing opposite her are very boring. I don't find any differentiating actors they all look the same something like the bride's play she's torn between two guys and i'm just like you both look like silent era pictures and they're both nerdy her leading men in her silent film work just seems so blah because she really overpowers then to see her opposite somebody like a clark gable where you're like okay this feels cool because at least their equal level name recognition to a classic film fan. I mean, how do you look at the men she was acting opposite? Am I being mean? <laughs> it's interesting because Katie Mabel was a Warner Brothers film and they borrowed Clark Gable from MGM for that specifically. So they clearly saw something in Clark Gable. Marion liked working with Clark Gable. She had worked with him in Polly of the Circus. Katie Mabel is certainly not his best work. Marion herself was never very comfortable in sound. So I don't know. Her sound era films, beyond the actor situation, there's also something that is different. There's something different in the sound era films than in the silent era films in terms of the way that Marion comes across. The silent era actors, I totally agree with you. There are a lot of people like, now, who's that guy again? (laughs) I know this isn't the greatest example, but think of 5 and 10, and she's opposite Leslie Howard, who... 
And a lot of the time I feel is pretty wooden and pretty boring compared to a lot of the 30s actors. It just gave her a chance to sparkle, really. She has so many great quips against him. She gets all the best lines. She gets all the best screen time, all the best angles and costumes. I'm not complaining when I see her against somebody who looks like a piece of toast. (laughs) That perfectly sums up pretty much every silent era dude I've watched in her movies. They are like a walking piece of toast. But you know what? I make those comparisons too because... I have a huge problem with half of the Kay Francis movies that I watch for that exact same reason. They just really loved pairing her with like Pat O'Brien and George Brent, who just had nothing to them. Hey, I can always tell George Brent, okay? He was tall. He had a mustache. Serving Kay Francis up to us on a silver platter. (laughs) Kay Francis is amazing. It just makes our ladies look better. Yeah, yeah. Very true. Marion really loved... Leslie Howard. She really enjoyed him. Dick Powell, too. Really liked acting with Dick Powell. I want to set the record straight. I do love Leslie Howard now. It took me a long time. I'm glad that you love him. I do not. And (laughs) Dick Powell is still on my list. I don't like him. (laughs) But, you know, it's so funny because Dick Powell married june allison and joan blondell fought over dick powell it's like why are we fighting over dick powell right that's really my problem no disrespect to joan blondell because i love her but girl you could have done so much better than that guy and marion was totally obsessed with dick powell now i'm starting to wonder if there's something there that i don't want to know about (laughs) yeah well think of that i want to know i need the tea well with marion it was what I was talking about earlier, the idea of being so affectionate and loving to everybody. Dick Powell was somebody that she really liked. And Dick Powell was really concerned that Marion's forward affectionate nature would tip off Hearst and that could spell the end of his career if he thought that Marion was coming on to him. But it wasn't. It was friendly and she was very upset. Marion was later in life when Dick Powell got really ill and June Allison wouldn't let her see him. I reserve all comments about June Allison. I think I made a snarky comment about June Allison in the last episode. I have a lot of them. We are known, I put that in air quotes, for talking and dispelling rumors, whether it's about Veronica Lake or we had Wyatt McRae talking about Joel McRae rumors. Marion has a lot of things associated with her that I know you've been trying to dispel over the last several years of putting this book together. Is there a rumor that like for me, when I hear about Veronica Lake's ashes, I just get an eye twitch and I get really mad about it. Is there a rumor that you're still sick of seeing and the book is setting it straight? Yeah, there are a couple of them. The big one that I get most of the time is that she and Hearst had a secret daughter. I've Um, heard that one. Yes, that one is very widespread. No, it's not true. Marion was never pregnant to term. She was not out of the public eye for any amount of time, let alone nine months, to be pregnant and have a baby. We know when Patricia was born. I have interviews with people who put their hand on Rose's belly, Marion's sister Rose, when she was pregnant with Patricia. It's not true. That one is set straight, I hope, in the book. The other one, of course, is the ints scandal, which was the basis for the cat's meow. That one comes up a lot. The truth is really quite boring. People like to believe the scandal because it's interesting. 
Ince had been sick since 1916, and he had been told that he could go on this yacht trip by his doctors as long as he didn't drink or eat salted almonds. Of course, he drank and ate salted almonds, got ill, and took a water taxi back to San Diego, had a heart attack on the train back up to LA, and died at home. That's the short version. That one is also addressed. There's one, I was going to send it to you, and I'm trying to find it right now, but there's one that is new that I saw. And I don't know if you've seen it, but it was in one of the many blind item communities about Peppy Letterer, who was her niece, that was essentially claiming that Hearst and Marion institutionalized her against her will. I'll have to send it to you. It's rare to find a new one. And I was like, yeah, that was in Louise Brooks's book. Oh, okay. Not even new. They're just trying to pass it off as new information. Yeah, Lulu in Hollywood. That was written in Lulu in Hollywood. Now, Louise Brooks writes a lot of sensational stuff in Lulu in Hollywood. Peppy was institutionalized. How against her will it was, that's where she died, right? She committed suicide, sadly. Marion was really worried about her. Marion and W.R., felt that she was spinning out of control, the drug use, and she did end up in an institution. I write about that. I write about that in the book. Did Peppy Wetterer have a relationship with Nina Mae McKinney? Because I think that's the coolest thing I've read, but I don't know if that's true. It would be so cool because I love Nina Mae McKinney. I do too. There's a story that Peppy and Nina Mae McKinney were at least hooked up for a bit. Peppy had a couple of girlfriends. She had one girlfriend named Monica Morris, another one named Betty Morrissey. Those were her main long-term girlfriends. But the story is that she and Nina Mae McKinney had a little go. I need this biopic ASAP. Of course, Laura has to oversee it and approve it, but I need it to exist because Peppy Letterer was the person when I was reading the book, I was like, I need this story because aside from the sad end, she seemed like a badass. She's an amazing character. She was a very talented writer. She was Charlie Letterer's older sister. She had a lot of talent that wasn't realized. And that, in combination with the fact that she was a lesbian and enjoyed dressing in traditionally masculine clothing, set her apart and set her outside of society a bit. That contributed to this sense of being very, I don't know, she got into the drug scene and couldn't get herself out of it. And there's no good way to transition from that. It's a pretty comprehensive book. Was there anything that you wanted to include, but just for the time, the way the story was developing, you couldn't include it? Something else that we didn't get to hear about? Yeah, there are a few things that didn't make it in that didn't quite move the story forward. Like, for example, some things with Marion's taxes. They all have tax issues. <laughs> yes, there was a little tax thing that was there, and I had told the story of it, but then it ultimately got cut because it stalled the story. There are certain things that I felt that I couldn't put in because I have no business putting them in. The people around are still alive, and I don't want to upset anybody. This is not really about Marion, but more about other people around her. Mostly it's things that just didn't move the story forward. There's one story that I really, really wanted to put in. And then I found out to my disappointment that it wasn't true. This story that Anita Luce told about Dan Simeon. And we always have to take what Anita Luce says with a grain of salt. I was hoping, hoping it was true. I had it in the manuscript and then I sent it to a Hearst 
scholar and he said this is the most untrue thing i've ever read in my life <laughs> so i had to take it out please tell me it was some sort of salacious crazy babylon-esque orgy because damien chazelle would love to know about that <laughs> no damien chazelle would be disappointed whatever i'll tell the story why not just know that it's not true anita luce said that once they were all at san Simeon, she and a bunch of friends and charlie letter and marion there was a Goya painting that was on the floor, like waiting to be put on the wall. Charlie Letterer ran into the refectory and said, where's Mr. Hurst? They all said, well, I don't know why. And he said, I just accidentally kicked a hole in that Goya painting. It just sums up the energy of San Simeon, right? Sadly, none of that is true. There was no Goya in that part of the house. That was the energy of San Simeon. There were these big fancy things and everybody was running around kicking holes. I love it. Oh my gosh. We're all in the business of helping people hopefully watch and enjoy some of these movies. Is there, you've been asked this question a million times, an ultimate Marion Davies movie that they can't miss, that they have to see, that you recommend above them all? It sounds cliche, but show people in the Patsy, obviously, right? That's A number one. I'm actually looking at this, Ben Modell's restoration of Xander the Great, which is not showing on TCM this month, by the way. Xander the Great is amazing. It's an amazing movie. I introduced it at the Niles SNA Salad Film Museum the other day. It's fantastic. So if you can get a hold of Xander the Great, you should see that. Beverly of Graustark is fabulous. Blondie of the Follies, 5 and 10. A lot of people really like Page Miss Glory. It has its own little fan base. It's Marion's first movie under her Warner Brothers contract. That's a really sweet one. That's the first one playing on the 24th. Samantha, you got anything you want to throw out? That was my next question. I definitely was curious because sometimes when you go through your research process, you end up finding other movies that maybe were out of the way that you didn't know before that are like a surprising gem. Do Do you have any of those? Beauty's Worth is really uh, sweet. Did you see Beauty's Worth, Kristen? Um, I did. Another one where I was like, the guy's so dull. (laughs) When I saw that one at the Library of Congress years ago, I finished it. It was like, what a delightful little movie. It's a great little Cinderella story with the whole plot in the middle hinges on this game of charades. It's just this large, epic Ben-Hur-esque pantomime that goes on for 15, 20 minutes. That's beautiful. It's opulent and Marion gets to show off her dancing skills and everybody's scandalized because she's doing the shimmy. But I'm also like, charades has really changed a lot since then, apparently. You know what else is a great movie that can't be shown because of rights issues is It's a Wise Child. This movie that she made that's very pre-code. Unfortunately, the estate of Guy who wrote the screenplay and the original material, his wife renewed the copyright of all of his material in the 60s, but his estate has no heirs. So his work is under copyright. And if anybody wants to show it, they have to go to the estate, but the estate has nobody watching it. It's a bit of a problem. Somebody could sort it out, but that takes time and money. But that one should be seen. That's that amazing. Is so frustrating. It's one of those things that we just keep having to deal with as classic film fans. I'm so happy that we got to talk about Marion. If somebody is coming into this from trying to watch one of the movies today, 
we all know that all of the modern versions are not great. You mentioned you like Virginia Madsen playing Marion, but when Mank came out, were you a fan of Amanda Seyfried's performance? She did the best she could with the material she was given. I don't want to say that I didn't like her performance because I think that there are so many things that go into somebody's performance. I don't want to say that Amanda Seyfried was bad. But what I can say is that it wasn't accurate to Marion Davies. I'll say she's the best part of a really boring, boring movie. I'll take that one for you. (laughs) I know that's so hard to hear because Amanda's one of my favorite modern actresses. And I do think there is a bit of a resemblance, especially in the way that they did her makeup looks wise. I was so happy to see it. The other thing that nobody has done, at least not done well or accurately, is Marion's speech, her stutter which was a huge part of her life and a huge part of her identity. Everybody just seems to go like right over that. Are you saying that Hollywood is ignoring disabilities and performers? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) What a revelation, right? Laura, it's always a treat to have you on talking about anything. You've been with us since the beginning talking about all manner of things. So we're so happy we can talk about your amazing book, captain of her soul feel free to let people know where they can reach out to you great i have a retrospective at the wilder theater all throughout february so if you're in the la area february 4th and 5th we're going to be doing some marion davies movies and then the following weekend we're going to be doing some marion davies movies and then the weekend after that it continues the marion davies thing at the wilder continues the retrospective but I'm not going to be there. I'm going to be in Kansas at the Kansas Silent Film Festival. So if you're in the Midwest, come to the Kansas Silent Film Festival the last weekend of February. It's free. And I'll be giving an introduction of Little Old New York and doing what they call the Cinema Dinner Talk, which is essentially a presentation on Marion Davies. You can reach out to me. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. You can just search for the book's Facebook page, Captain of Her Soul, The Life of Marion Davies. And I'm at Backlots Film everywhere. That closes out Ticklish Business for today. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Reviews matter, so leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars should do. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Ticklish underscore biz, as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Ticklish Biz. You can follow me at Classic Film Geek on Twitter, and you can find my blog at musingsofaclassicfilmatic.com. Kristen, where can fans find and get in touch with you? As always, I'm on Twitter at journeys underscore film. You can also find me on Instagram and TikTok at Kristen Lopez 88. Our Patreon helps keep the lights on at Ticklish Biz HQ and gives us a chance to do new content. So consider helping us out at patreon.com slash Ticklish Biz. And don't forget Kristen's book, But Have You Read the Book, is out March 7th. So you can pre-order it wherever you buy books. Thank you.